Sometimes the worst possible thing happens. He leaves. She dies. They won't. It ends. And all the light disappears and the temperature drops and as you shiver you wish you wish it hadn't ended like this. This is a story about what happens in the darkness, in the gaping chasm that follows what was, the unwelcome abyss that supplants what should have been. It's a story about loss and about the dashing of dreams. And it's a story about bad endings that may not be endings at all. I'm Justin Gerhardt. Welcome to Holy Ghost Stories. strapped to these donkeys. Every gust of thirsty wind blows a bit more topsoil away. In the fields, the meager excuses for crops bake in the sun, brittle and inedible. Naomi squints past the edge of Bethlehem into the horizon, praying for rain. Her clavicle pushes against the skin below her neck, her humerus visible in the curve of her shoulder, as if her bones are trying to escape and strike out on her own in search of food. We must escape this barren place. Naomi's husband, Elimelech, gives her that look he makes when his mind's made up. But Bethlehem is our home. Judah is our home. Yahweh will take care of us, of course. But it seems... He intends to do that somewhere else. Conversations like this surely have punctuated the last several weeks. The Judean famine has prompted these talks in homes throughout the land. We don't even know for sure that it's better in Moab. And who do we know there? We'll be strangers, foreigners. And what about the boys? How long will we stay? Malon's turning into a man before our eyes, and Kilion isn't far behind. It's not long before they'll need to marry. If Naomi objects to her husband's plan to journey east as refugees, Elimelech counters, perhaps, then they'll marry in Moab. Moabite girls. But the gaunt faces of Naomi's neighbors and the funerals she's attended during the last few months argue Elimelech's point quite convincingly. Marry there or die here. And so Naomi tightens the ropes, lashing all their possessions to the donkey's backs. She looks into Elimelech's tired eyes, perhaps, and offers a resigned smile. At least she and her husband will be together. Naomi looks around her home, takes a breath, and walks away.
The mountains of Moab stand enormous against the eastern shore of the Dead Sea. Atop them, a plateau spans 25 miles, perched thousands of feet above the salt water. Somehow, it's green, covered in fields of living crops. Hope. It's a strange land, certainly, and the people worship strange gods. Chemosh, the destroyer, chief among them. But Judah and the other tribes of Israel aren't much different these last few generations. Altars to Baal, Asherah poles in the high places, dark days. And good practice. Naomi and Elimelech had to work to maintain their devotion to Yahweh in Bethlehem, just as they'll have to here in Moab. They do maintain their devotion, and the family begins to make a life for themselves in this new place. Naomi misses home, they all do, but things are fine here. The boys seem to be happy enough, too happy, perhaps, the way they smile at the Moabite girls. Don't get too comfortable here, Naomi might warn. We are only visitors. I'm sure we'll leave as soon as the famine's over. We know, Mom, the boys respond. Something like that. But weeks turn into months, and the high plain of Moab is still their home. The strange songs of the Moabites still fill their ears on pagan feast days. They're still on the wrong side of the sea. Then, to Naomi's horror, Elimelech dies. Sickness or an accident or a dispute gone wrong. Whatever's the cause, Naomi is thrust into widowhood, doing her best to care for her sons as they do their best to care for her. What is it like to bury your husband in a place that does not feel like home? It feels wrong, surely. You wonder, as you lay him to rest in this strange place, if you will join him there. And it's hard, because somehow you don't like the idea of that. Nor do you like the idea of the alternative. Every day brings a new wave of grief, a new variation of pain. Dull, sharp, viscous, thin, enraging, dreary, a kaleidoscope of sorrows tumbling relentlessly into new expressions. At least she has her boys, their faces marked with Elimelech's features. Every once in a while, they'll make the exact face he used to make laugh just the way she'd heard him laugh 10,000 times. Days, months, years perhaps pass. The wound remains deep, but narrows, bumped a little less often. And when Malan and Kilion tell Naomi they've chosen girls to marry, what can she do? Would she deny them the chance to crawl out of their grief? She gives her blessing. Orpah and Ruth are Moabite girls, a 
Of course they are. But they're kind to her, and she likes them. But several years after Elimelech's passing, Naomi finds herself plummeting into a nightmare deja vu. Death steals into her life once more. But this time, it is not satisfied with just one prize. The devilish thief takes two. Malan and Kilian die. Sickness or an accident or a dispute gone wrong, whatever the cause, the widowed Naomi is thrust into childlessness. It's as if Yahweh is asleep at the wheel. Orpah and Ruth feel pain they've never felt before. And Naomi, what's it like to bury your sons in a place that does not feel like home? A black veil draws across Naomi's soul. Her beloved men, all of them, are gone. What's left for her here? Food, for one. But then, Naomi hears that Yahweh has come to the aid of his people, bringing rains and crops and life back to Judah. Finally. The girls, though, what about them? Well, they'll just have to come. But this cannot be an easy decision. For one, there's the prospect of bringing Moabite women back to Judah, and all of the feelings people back home might have about that. But two, if Naomi leaves Moab, she leaves the graves of Elimelech and Malon and Kilion. No visits, no flowers laid as a remembrance. And if she goes, she always thought, surely, that she would die where her husband died, that she'd be buried there. But now, it seems death has separated them in every way. Leaving means she'll die in Judah and be buried in Judah, alone. They're cursed. Did Ruth ever hear those words from her mother? Her father? When she ran into her old neighbors at the market? That family is cursed, and now you are too. It serves you right for marrying a foreigner. It's true, calamity has certainly haunted them these last few years. But Naomi is so kind, peaceful, patient, and the way she talks about her God... Naomi is heartbroken, of course, angry even. It's been easy to overhear a few very direct prayers. But she still speaks about him as though he keeps promises, as though he's with her, as though he's good. If there is anything about me you love, it's him you're seeing. That's the kind of thing Naomi would say. And if that's the case, well, Yahweh certainly seems like a different god than Chemosh. And so when Ruth sees Naomi packing up her things, 
strapping her whole life to the back of a donkey, she packs her things as well. Orpa, too. Tears fall on the satchels and saddlebags, the folded fabric and the clay pots dotted with three women's sadness, their crumbled hopes, the loss of all that might have been. When everything's prepared, Ruth looks around her home, takes a breath, and walks away. The trio moves west along the road that will take them to Judah. The morning sun shines on their backs as if to push them along. Ruth wonders what awaits them. Does she wish she had a little boy in tow who reminded her of Kilion? She doesn't. It all happened so fast. No husband, no child. A shattered present and a stolen future. Will she ever hold a child of her own? A grandchild? A great-grandchild? Suddenly, Naomi stops, turns to Ruth and Orpah, her face painted with emotion. Go back, she says. Go back, each of you, to your mother's home. Wait, what? But she continues, may Yahweh show you kindness as you have shown kindness to your dead husbands and to me. Tears now, a determined smile. May Yahweh grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. Before Ruth can react, Naomi is moving toward her, kissing her on the cheek, kissing her goodbye. The world spins sideways as Ruth feels her own tears emerge and mingle with Naomi's, Orpas, too, now join the flow. The young women shake their heads, a reflexive rejection of the notion of losing this woman they love. In moments, their tongues have joined the protest. No, we will go back with you to your people. That unleashes the floodgates. Full-fledged weeping now ensues. The three of them locked in an embrace on the side of the road. Naomi, though, gathers herself and doubles down. Return home, my daughters. More shaking of heads, but Naomi continues. Why would you come with me? It's as if she's thinking out loud. Am I going to have any more sons who could become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. I am too old to have another husband. Her mind continues processing. Her mouth continues to relay the thoughts in real time. Even if I thought there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight and then gave birth to sons, would you wait until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? Naomi takes Orpah's and Ruth's faces in her hands, perhaps. No, my daughters, it is more bitter for me than for you. Her lips tremble. She winces with the pain of saying this aloud, because Yahweh's hand has turned against me. At this, they weep aloud again.
Ruth, her head buried in Naomi's chest, cherishes the feeling of her mother-in-law's hand smoothing her hair. How long have they stood like this? Look, Naomi says gently, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. It's true. Ruth turns her head and sees a blurry Orpah walking away, back toward home. Her goodbye kiss still shines on Naomi's cheek. In moments, Orpah crests a hill and with one more look back, turns and disappears. Another loss for Ruth. Go back with her, Naomi says, her eyes fixed on Ruth's. She's so young. But Ruth locks her arms around Naomi, as if she's clinging not just to a woman, but to a life, to whatever it was that drew her to this strange family in the first place, to those expressions of Naomi's that remind her of Kilion, to that Yahweh God, and whatever there may be in store among the people he's chosen to bless. She pulls away, stands straight, looks at Naomi and says, Don't, don't urge me to leave you or turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Naomi's lips tremble, her cheeks streaked with new tears. Ruth continues, where you die, I will die, and there I, I will be buried. May Yahweh deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. It's too much. Naomi pulls Ruth close and they embrace again, surrendered, resolved together. Bethlehem sits atop a ridge on the eastern side of the mountains south of Jerusalem. It's a small town where everyone knows everyone, where everything that happens is noticed and remembered. So when Naomi returns after more than a decade away, the whole town effervesces with incredulous welcome. Is it really Naomi? They ask. No, says the widow of Elimelech. It's not. Don't call me Naomi. Naomi pleasant one, it means. It's stuck in her teeth ever since the thief. Call me Mara. Bitter. Because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but Yahweh has brought me back empty. She scoffs. Why call me Naomi? Yahweh has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. 
This is not the jubilant reunion for which some might have hoped. Naomi is clearly a changed woman. And the stranger, is that a Moabite girl with her? If Naomi asks about friends from before she left, she's told surely that many of them died in the famine. Home. How can this place feel foreign too? But though it feels like a tragic end, this is in fact the middle of Naomi's story. And it's just the beginning of Ruth's. fruit is seeds. There might be 30 grains of barley on a single stalk, 10 stalks on a single plant, 300 seeds from a single grain. Adjacent ascending rows of husk-wrapped promise, the golden eye-shaped kernels nestled together neatly, each one culminating in a long, stiff filament that extends for two inches or so straight out from the tip of the hull, as if it were pointing beyond itself, an expression of its own potential. It's a type of grass, really, but barley is different from other grasses. Good different. Bread, porridge, biscuits, beer. After the reaping, there's so much that might happen. Sown in November or December, the plant grows during the chilly winter, an inhospitable season. And yet, the alchemy happens every year. The cold is just right for producing barley's three-layered husk. Below the husk, the waxy pericarp layer and the high-lipid testa protect the grain, making sure it's preserved until germination, when all manner of wonders break forth. When the barley plants bow their heads, the harvest is nigh. It happens in late March, early April, a harbinger of warmer, brighter days to come, and a testament to the good work Yahweh does in the dark. When Ruth and Naomi arrive in Bethlehem, the barley harvest is just beginning. Justin here. Thank you for listening to part one of The Alchemist, The Strangers, and The Volunteer. This is the first of either two or three episodes I'm devoting this season to the story Yahweh writes with Naomi and Ruth and Boaz. It is such a beautiful um, escape, really, from the chaos and the godlessness that marked so much of the period of the judges. I can't wait for us to meet Boaz next time. 
If you've been listening for a few weeks or a few months now and you're thinking, you know, I've been considering becoming a patron for a while, this is a great time to jump in. I know you're busy and things get in the way, so this is your heartfelt reminder to be the person you want to be and pitch in to make sure that Holy Ghost Stories continues to exist. I'm so grateful to those of you who've become patrons. You are the reason I've been able to continue making a go at this. But just some quick context, so far I'm at less than half of the salary I was making when I left preaching. Now, you may hear that and think, well, Justin, why then are you doing season four up big, hiring a composer and all that? Why would you raise money to pay someone else when you're still not getting paid what you need? Well, I suppose that's a fair question. And the answer is mostly that I can't help it. I want so badly to make this show everything that I believe it can be. I want to double down on quality so that the reach continues to broaden and the impact continues to deepen and more people are affected more powerfully by spending time with Yahweh in these stories. And it's a privilege to get the sacrifice in order to make that happen. But as more and more of you jump in on Patreon, the chances of me being able to continue to devote myself to this podcast increase. Every patron buys us another little while that Holy Ghost Stories is in the world, free to everyone who encounters it. So if you love this show, you can make sure it keeps happening. There are great things ahead. Become a patron and let's do them together. Patreon.com slash Holy Ghost Stories, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash Holy Ghost Stories. The link's in the show notes and at Holy Ghost Stories. Org. All right, speaking of patrons, thanks again to all of you lovely people who support the show and a grateful shout out from all of us to the Tours: Don, Catherine, Jean-Paul, Tiffany, Jack, Rebecca, Sarah Beth, Ginger, Luke, Derek, Debbie, Aaron, Stephanie, Vicenta, Cheyenne, Boo, Helen, Elizabeth, Susan, Rick, Maddie, April, Eric, Jody, John, Ricky, Brandy, Kimmy, Steve, Patrick, Liz, Stevens, Terry, Jack, Nelwyn, Julie, Jamie, Stephen, Trina, Jessica, Ken, Alyssa, Sloan, Kara, and Jamie. You guys make me want to weep joyful Naomi and Ruth kind of tears. Till next time.